0: Hey, Michael, how are you? How are, how are you? Amazed. Really good, really excited. There's a lot of positive energy about this, so people are interested to hear you speak. Oh, man.
1: How are things going in general? How's your, how your, how's your family? How are you? Good. Thank God. We
0: just opened yeshiva, so we're good. Just opened yeshiva, meaning guys are back? Yeah. Yeah, yesterday we're, we're uh, slowly, slowly getting them back into the yeshiva only israelism right yeah yeah okay michael we've got some people in the waiting room so let's get down first of all do you mind if it's recorded a lot of people can't make it if they really wanted to hear it no problem okay now they hear me a lot so you're the show um so whichever you feel more comfortable with um you could either just do all the talking We've had success before with like conversation like in the New York Times when Gail Collins and Brett like US Me questions, but keep in mind they hear me a lot, so they don't really need to hear me. Michael. Yeah, yeah. I'm here. Okay. okay. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, Listen. I'm gonna give you a little bit of an introduction. and I'll say some nice things about you, and then I'll just pose a question. Um yeah, I'll try to make the questions personal but not invasive. The more personal, the more people feel it's authentic. No problem. Okay. I've been okay. doing a bunch of these. I can, imagine. I can yeah. imagine.
1: The most interesting one, by the way, I've done so far, was with Oxford University MBA students from around the world. It was fascinating. Well, what, uh, type
0: of, what type of questions do you hit out of, out of the park? Or be? It, like, give me a, a prompt, like a really great question for you.
1: I don't. Know, you can ask anything. This is a different audience, you know. I, uh, I, I don't know. It all depends. It all depends on how controversial
0: you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the goal. The goal is maybe it's a good that you mentioned. It. The goal of this is they shed more Yerusha'ayim than when they began. And look, you've got a really broad crowd, and you're able to create triggers in them that I can't. So they should see you as everything they want to be, but Yerusha'ayim and a bentar as you are, and and, and that's the goal.
1: The same Say this: Corona has been good for your Shemaim. It's been, it's been less good for what they call Kavod but it's been good for your Hashemaim.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to try to just play around with my settings. I can't really get this any better. really weak Can't get what any better. My picture looks like very fuzzy and fuzzy. But what's it called? Yeah,
1: you should use a cloth. No, it, it's it's your lens. I can tell it's your lens from here. Need a damp okay. cloth. Well, I have a computer cloth, you know, one of these. Uh, breathe on it. It's not Corona safe, but you should breathe on it.
0: Okay, a little better. Slightly.
1: I think you're the only guy coming out of Corona with less gray hair.
0: I went to You just can't see it on the camera. What'd you say? You just can't see it on the camera.
1: (laughs) I made the giant mistake of attempting to give myself a haircut before the armor.
0: It didn't go very well. Okay. In another minute, I'm going to let people in and uh, we'll start. Okay. I was just going to step away for a second. No problem. Okay, Michael, can we start? You yes. ready? I'm ready. Okay, we'll let people in, see waiting room. You hear that boom? Yeah. The
1: Army is running a Targill here with live ammunition. We're in New Shalayan?
0: No, I'm in New I'm further up north. Okay. Oh well, we're, we're live, Michael, so. Okay. Hello, everybody. Let everyone in. Is, it, is there a way for me to automatically now let everyone in? Yeah, under security. Where's security? You can get rid oh. of the uh, waiting room thing. I got it, thanks. Perfect, thank you. Hey Michael. Hey, how are you? Okay. Okay, let's we'll wait another minute, let people join us and uh, we'll start. Okay, welcome everyone. Um, hopefully this will be the start of a series. We wanna to try to get a chance to sit down together once a week and meet some really, not just interesting people, but inspiring people. So it's hard to, uh, it's hard to top our first guest. Let me tell you a little bit about our first guest. Um, I could probably <laughs> we don't have that much time, but professionally, He's uh, been deeply involved in the venture capital scene in Israel. Um, He's a Gush alum, 1991, Michael? Uh, I got there in 89. 89. Can I actually get a mute, everyone? So this way it could be a little quieter. And um, that's his profession, but he's really involved in a lot more. Um, He is deeply, deeply involved in the Israeli financial scene and Israeli financial. Large thinking about where we're headed. I'll speak a little bit about that today, Michael, as we segue from the beginning of Parshas Bahar to the end of Parshas Bahar, which describes just the, the way a society should be structured and built and the interface between morality and, and vision and national agenda, and of course, a uh, free market, which is necessary to drive the engine necessary to drive the economy. He's at the forefront of representing Israel. He's uh, he's, a, he's a rock star in the international tech scene, he's constantly being interviewed. Um, so he really represent everything that's great and right about our country very, very proudly. Um, he's been authoring a blog, which is a little bit inaccurately named. Six kids in a full-time job. He really has eight children and many, many full-time jobs. So the Raisha is a little off and the Saifa is a little bit off of that name. Raisha Lokotani, Saifa Lokotani. Um, he's written for Sparm. Aside from books, he's written for Sparm. So you're four ahead of me, Michael, in that respect. I'm playing catch-up on that area. But mo- most importantly, with everything that you've accomplished, and hopefully some of it will come through, this ha- is be- the best compliment I can give you. It serves on the board of the yeshivas is deeply involved in helping drive the yeshiva forward. But the best, the best compliment I could give you, and I hope to really have a chance to speak with you tonight a little bit, is that no matter how far you've gone through the end of Parshas Bihar, the first pasik still defines you. You're still in Harsinah, and you're still in the yeshiva, and you're a yeshiva bachar in your heart. And you deeply, deeply appreciate the Kohatara and the Koachabishiva, not just as a spectator from afar, but someone is still deeply, deeply ingrained in a life of not just being Makada Shaim Shamayim bimitake, and being taken all of them in general terms, but really a life of Yura Shamayim, a life of Avodah Hashem in all the best ways. So everyone take a good look over Zoom. We don't just want to throw out models of Rebbe's for you. We want you to meet really, really incredible people. And hopefully this will give you a chance to meet some of those people. I'm going to stop talking now, and um, Michael. So I'm going to unmute Michael, unmute myself. Um, tell me how that blog came into being. What has what, what that blog meant to you? I don't know it's probably a smaller part of what you're involved in, but that blog, six six kids and a full-time job.
1: You know, it was, uh, first of all, thank you um, for the quite embarrassing introduction. Um... And, uh, and for the opportunity, this is, this is about what we can do to find the base medrash uh, these days. So the, Rabbi Taragin told me that the yeshiva is back in session uh, as of the last 24 hours. Uh, uh, I saw the inside of a shul for the first time this past Friday night in the last uh, two months, basically since Purim. Uh, and um, uh, you know, it's, been, it, it's been a challenging time uh, on that front. I will say that uh, spending time in, in a house with your family does give you opportunities, more opportunities to learn with your children, um, which has, which has been good. But the blog, apropos of the kids, um, was, uh, was a poorly uh, named, very unscalable uh, choice of a brand. Um, uh, it just kind of people started. I've been blogging since like 2005. It was the beginning of blogs um and i couldn't come up with anything original so i took the number of kids i had and a full time job of course my my wife would probably put the first comment on the blog uh, blog uh wrote a comment saying that uh her she's going to write a blog too it's called six kids is a full time job and uh it'll probably appear in another 10 years and um uh but it turns out by the way it taught me an interesting lesson in uh in marketing which is that marketing is all about friction uh, and creating a story and and, and a narrative. So as we had uh, children seven and eight, it like became half a joke, which is, uh, you know, my blog is six kids and and a full-time job, but uh, it doesn't match the number of kids I have. And it became a whole topic of conversation. So everybody remembers it at this point. Oh, he's the kid who already has six kids, but he doesn't. And uh, just tells you how much you can believe the advertising. But there is, um, uh, I started to blog um, because I wanted to talk about the intersections of my my own personal life, which was uh, family, uh, Jewish issues, religious issues, um, and technology. And uh, along the way, because I have an interest in politics, there's some of that there too. Um, And I started to explore just to have a conversation with people who I didn't know. Um, And I found it interesting. It's like finding harusas all over the world for different topics. And, uh, I haven't been blogging as much as of late, although I still do some, um, just been busy with a few other things and, uh, writing, writing books or Swarm tends to take a lot of time away from blogging.
0: You're on mute. How do you find the time to write Swarm when you're traveling the world and, and involved in so many areas professionally, personally, like what is the time? Where do you still the time? The worst thing about Corona, the worst
1: for me, aside from the obvious health and human tolls, is that I don't have time on the planes anymore to write my swarm. Uh, you know, I would travel every three or four weeks, and that time was golden for for spending four and five hours straight uh, to be able to write. And uh, um, so I still write in the morning. I'm, I'm actually right now editing Hukosai uh, in the next volume of the series on the economics and the Torah. Um, and so please God, ikra will come out next year, but it's been harder to get through it. Uh, and keep writing. And I'm, I'm, working on the English translation at the same time. And, uh, it's been harder, but in general, um, one of the things I learned from Rav barn Lichtenstein is, uh, start early in the morning and, uh, and set a time. Uh, I once heard him say that, uh, people think it's about the Torah. It's really about you. If you're not eat him for yourself and put it in your schedule, you just won't get to it. And so I tend to do it first thing in the morning so it doesn't get bounced. And I'm in general an early riser. So so I start that before the day catches up.
0: There's a legendary story, Michael, about you and Rav Amitav. Do you know which one I'm referring to? Care to share?
1: You know, it, it, I'll tell you the back end of the story to start. Um, I never talked about it, ever, this story. Um, and before Rav Amital's 80th birthday, which was in binyale oma I got a call from some guy in the yeshiva. I didn't know who it was. Um, who, uh, who said, we understand you have a story with Rav Amital and your aliyah. Is it true? I said, yes. He said, he wants you to tell it on stage. I said, there's no way that he wants me to tell it on stage. And they did this birthday event for Vomitav Binyane I'm sure Taragin was there. Uh, there were a couple thousand people. I was landing from the U.S. that morning, that Friday morning. I told them, no, 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 and the city insists. And um, and I agreed, I landed, I went straight to Binyane Oma uh, in the morning. Uh, and um, anyway, the story goes roughly as follows. If people knew the story, they just, I don't think, knew it was me. Uh, that uh, when I was in Yeshiva, it was right after the first Gulf War. So I guess it was 1991, right after Purim, 1991. And to be honest, I had not thought seriously about making Aliyah at that point, but I asked Rav Amital in somewhat of a press conference. There were 15 people. I actually just heard from a friend of mine from my time in Yeshiva that he was in the room and remembers being there. I didn't know he was there, but there were about 15 of us there. And um, I asked him if he thought there was a bigger mitzvah of Yeshua Yisrael for somebody who came and settled in the Galil Negev, Yudavish Shomron, a place that had less population, or Yerushalayim in Tel Aviv was the same mitzvah of Yeshua Aretz. He looked at me and he said, be on this language. Nonsense. Uh, Talei takim ishi. Po za mitzvah says, You know, make layah and set up a factory that will employ. 10,000 people who can earn an honest and decent living, that'd be the biggest mitzvah. And really on the spot, I decided to make aliyah. I still went back to YU and finished two years, but came immediately afterwards. Um, but it was a, uh, it was the first time I heard any rav, let alone a rush yeshiva, talk about economics and business. Um, it was the first time I heard this notion of parnasah bechavod, you should earn honest and decent living, which has accompanied me through, through my life. Um, and it was really Rav who inspired uh, me to make Aliyah. And then thankfully, I found uh, a wife who was interested in coming also at the same time. And uh, and that's kind of been the Amuda-ish uh, in front. But the, the epilogue of the story at the 80th birthday is I get up there and I tell this story. And he's like, Rav Amital, if you knew him, he had that kind of this Cheshire grin. He would, he, he would every once in a while, I, and I see something's coming. I'm not, not sure what it is. And that's why I tell the story. He turns to me and says, no, How many people do you employ now? And I said, not 10,000. He said, get down and get back to work. And, uh, you know, that 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 uh, that continues to inspire me to this day. I'm actually thankful to the guy who called me to do it because it freed me to tell the story more often. And Rav Amital deserves... Uh, uh, a huge amount of the recognition and and, and credit for everything. I dedicated my first paper to Avamital.
0: Michael, tell us a little bit where this is landing, this whole economic situation. You know, part two, the crisis, part one is obviously the medical issue and um, different countries are trying to get a handle of that, different waves. But everyone knows there's a tsunami, economic tsunami looming. And I'm, I'm interested not just in your perspective as an e- economist, because I think there are economists all over that could offer perspectives, sure and no one really knows. But in particular, where the state of Israel, what, what's going to be Israeli, what, what do you see on their rising? Because we're all trying to manage the situation as human beings facing a worldwide crisis, but also we feel as if, as Jews in Israel, is that is that something you you because I know you, you were just interviewed this weekend in you Yedioth or Why Not they just had you in the front cover sure it's nothing new but us where do you think this is all landing economically in the state of Israel international affairs? All right, um, this will be a bit of a long
1: answer. Uh, the first disclaimer is I'm not an economist. Um, uh, I'm a practitioner uh, in the economy, um, uh, but. Let let me perhaps start with the framework of how I think about this, because I actually think um, for any bentora, anyone with a neshama, this is actually a very important uh, distinction. Um, There's a a very big difference uh, in the world of economy and business um, between risk and uncertainty. Most people conflate those two terms, but they are not the same. Most people say, "Oh, it's uncertain times; it's risky." No, no, no. It's uncertain times, so it's uncertain. Um, This is not like a brisker hakira, or maybe it is a brisker hakira. It is, it is fundamental to understanding complex systems, Um, and economics in the world are complex systems. Um, uh, I've often said. Uh, in, in different contexts, but but it's highly relevant, uh, that I always find it dubious. Uh, people who say uh, they know for 100% certainty that there is a God. Well, if you know, you can't believe. There must be an element of uncertainty, and therefore, for example, Avram, I want to talk to Lichtenstein about this at length. Um, uh, we all live with uncertainty, and one of the advantages of being a, a adam ma'amin, with your is that it is faith and belief in an uncertain world that gives us guidance. And I think the world we're in now of corona is, is particularly uh, um, uncertain. Um, and now I'm going to dive into the economic difference. Risk is quantifiable. Means I can means resu- I can measure risk. Most of you probably know what a hedge fund is. They're all over the place if you live in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut. Um, but hedge funds were invented, call it, 30 or so years ago. And what do they do? Uh, they make investments, and then they hedge them, meaning reduce the risk on them by buying all sorts of derivatives, options, uh, ways to bound the risk. Now, you can do that if you understand the risk model. So they build models to understand uh, the risk. And you have one and two and three standard deviations from the mean. Which lets you bound the risk. So I will buy uh, a set of of, of uh, risk breakers at various standard deviations of risk away from from the mean. Um, that is what you do when you are managing risk. Um, uncertainty uh, breaks all models, and is not about risk management. It's actually the opposite. It's the ability to live. Um, and invest uh, into completely uncertain environments. Um, to take this at its extreme, we have no ability to predict the future. None. Um, we have no idea where this is all taking us. This corona—it's broken all the models. The U.S. has not seen, for example, this level of unemployment since the Great Depression. And if you want to know why the market gapped down so quickly, is because in uncertainty, people run to cash. Now, uncertainty, I don't know if we lost our by targeting, but, um, in uncertainty, um, you react differently than you react in risk situations. In, in risk situations, like I said, you bound the risk, you buy protection. You cannot buy protection in uncertainty. You can live with resilience. And those two things are very different. So what do people do? In uncertain economic situations, if you want to have resilience, the one thing, first thing you need to do is survive. You need to survive economically. So if you're an investor, you need to make sure you have money to invest and that not all your companies or investments are wiped out. That's number one. Number two is you need to be searching for opportunity into this uncertainty. And therefore, you need almost an iron stomach, a belief for in meaning infinite number of potential outcomes. Um, I often uh, say in the name of my partner, benchmark Bruce Dunleavy is a very wise man. He used to say that the venture capital business, which is the business I spend my day job in is if this goes right and this goes right and this goes right and this goes right and that goes right. And that goes right. right, Then you have a very big outcome. And each of those portals is about 2%. When you multiply 2% times five and six and seven and eight times, you get to a very small number. Um, and uh, that's why, for example, in the venture capital business that I live in, um, there's just data released by Correlation Ventures in um, 21,000 investments made between 2004 and uh, in 2014. If my memory serves me correctly, uh, less than 50, I think that was 44, made more than 50 times their money. Sixty five percent lost money. Sixty five percent of all those investments lost money. Um, it's a huge number. Out of twenty-one thousand, that's fourteen or fifteen thousand of these investments lost money because it's highly uncertain. You start with these very small ideas, etc. We only hear about, at least most people only hear about, the big successes, the Facebooks, the Googles, etc. But those are, you know, one, one in a thousand, one in, you know, a small number, and uh, and so, but those are those are investing into very uncertain waters, and I think. Um, Corona has cast us into a mountain of uncertainty on multiple vectors. Um, to, to Rabbi Tarragon's second question, which I think is related to the first is who thrives in uncertainty? Um, one, uh, it's people with a true North star. They have something that is an anchor in their life beyond these winds of change and uncertainty. Uh, but number two, um, what Dan Ariely uh, called on a conversation I had with him four weeks ago, or solidarity. The more solidarity a society has, the more it will emerge from corona better. Um, I, I think that's uh, very obvious on some level, but it's obvious to say it's very difficult to implement. Um, and. Uh, Dan Ariely, the famous behavioral economist or behavioral psychologist, came back to Israel when this started. And when you ask him, why did you come back to Israel uh, from his position at Duke in North Carolina? It was, uh, this is a place of solidarity. This is where I want to be and help out. And I think when I think of Israel uh, in this environment, I think the world is in for a bunch of complicated years. Uh, a bunch. Um, uh, Someone I respect greatly, a a writer named Matt Ridley, Uh, he has a great book you should read called The Rational Optimist, even though he makes fun of Ishael and Yehezkel in the book, which I don't think you should take seriously. He doesn't understand them. Um, uh, The Nevi'im. it's a worthwhile book called The Rational Optimist. Thinks we're on the other side of corona, and kind of now we're just getting used to life with corona. I don't think so for what it's worth. Um, Because I think uh, psychological fears have developed over this time Uh, Both economic and personal and behavioral, uh, that are complicated. So, I think the most, the the societies with the highest levels of solidarity will survive and thrive in uncertain times. And I am very, very bullish on Israel in that environment. I think if you look at what happens in Israel when times get tough, people come together. I think that's not an accident. It has a lot to do with the army, it has a lot to do with the fundamental homogeneity of the population, despite the president of Israel's uh, speech on. uh, on Shvatim, on tribalism here. And so there's a fundamental solidarity that emerges in times of trouble. And I think that will show us very well. I have already, you can find this on the video, so even if we're being recorded, it won't be the first time. I think in 30 years from now, Israel will pass the U.S. in income per capita um, because I think our economy will emerge from this uh, much stronger than the U.S. I think our people will emerge from this uh, stronger than the U.S. and, and for sure stronger than Europe. Um, and kind of more broadly, I think, given that Europe is, has as a very low level of solidarity between countries and in country, um, I think it's in big, big trouble, uh, through this. And I think, uh, time is going to tell over the next 12 months in particular, whether America can pull its act together here or the fissures in society, uh, really crack it open. Um, but, uh, uh. Part of what I said in the interview that Rabbi Tarigan, uh referenced is, uh, I think we are literally the luckiest people alive to be living in Israel. Um, I said this is not in a religious context. This is, you know, on the front of Yidio, through Kalkalist or whatever it is, or why not. Uh, our, our grandparents would have given their arms and legs for this. Um, I think the fact that we have vuta de here, and, and, and solidarity, and Shomer is fundamental up an organization I'm involved with called the Shomer Chadash some of you may have heard of it, which protects farmers and ranchers. Catch this statistic. Um, the Israeli farmers had a hard time picking the crops because the Thailandis went home for the Asian New Year. Uh, many of them couldn't get back, and the Palestinians couldn't get in due to corona. We got 18,000 volunteers to go to the fields to pick the crops. 18,000 free laborers who went to pick the crops. And then many of them acted as salesmen back in the Yishuvim and hometowns to go do that. Um, I was on the phone with the governor's office in Florida two weeks ago because they're calling to ask about our model, how we can move it there. I had a congressman from West Virginia calling we have the governor's office in California trying to figure out how do you learn from this model? How do you create solidarity among all these young people to come do it? By the way, it wasn't just young people. It was L.L. pilots and stewardesses and people off of university and everything in between. And, uh, um, and so, you know, I think there are moments of
0: solidarity that matter and carry with us going forward. I mean, I'm sure you spend your life being Makare shem Shemayim and so much of it is because you're not situated in the base medrash. I said you really have the Neshama but uh, you, you circulate in a very different world. What was that moment that you came into contact with someone who just was so far from your world and you were really able to turn him? Was it about the children? What is about Israel? Was it about religion? Was it about the combination? It's not like one moment you meet so many different people, and obviously you leave a lasting impact on them. Is there something that just comes to you right away, like wow, with all due humility, I realize we're Shemaim here in a way that I could never have dreamed of. Um, yeah,
1: the first thing I would say I'm not trying to turn anyone. Um. I'm just kind of trying to do my job and be who I am. Uh, I, I I have a funny story. Um, I'm not sure I turned it. It didn't turn anyone for sure, but it's a funny story. So I can't remember the year exactly, but uh, early in the 2000s, buses were blown up all over Yushalayim. And uh, ever since I was in yeshiva, one of the things I took with me, uh, my favorite Masech Ben shas is Moid Katten. Um particular Elu Megalachin, the third parak, and, and part of the first parak about Shemitah. Um, and uh, one of the things I took with me and kind of always troubled me when I lived in Chutzler, was that people looked at Cholomoy like it was a regular day. And what really bothered me was you'd have people take vacation during the year and work on Cholomoy so that they could take their vacation during the year. And that felt to me to be upside down. And so one of the things I resolved when I made Aliyah was, uh, is that I was going to be off in Holomoyed. And by the way, uh, my office and I have partners who are definitely not from, uh, definitely not Dati. Uh, my, my partner who I love dearly is a sworn atheist. Um, we're shut on Holomoyed. And, uh, I got invited to speak at a conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, and, uh, I got the date wrong, and it was on Cholamoid. And uh, I realized a few weeks before that this conference was on Cholamoid, and I was committed to go speak there. So I called the Rav, and I said to him, I never work on Cholamoid. I don't go to work. I'm not not going to conferences. I said, but I'm actually having a suffix. I committed to this conference, and buses are blown up. I don't want anyone to say that it's because of uh, terrorism and Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalayim that I'm not uh, coming to the conference. What should I do? He said, you need to go. Next time, check your calendar better, but you need to go. And uh, and I went. It was before 9-11 because you could still take it to Lulav and esrog with you. And the guy who worked for me at the time brought me from his father, uh, lived in Australia, a balsa wood case uh, for my Lulav. And it had nothing to do with this trip. He just brought it to me as a present right before Yontif. I said, this is like Misha mind that my balsa wood case turned up. and. Uh, uh, I was so angry at myself that I had done this, that I resolved that even though I was a Yotza Aderech, I wouldn't eat outside of a sukkah, uh, a mizonos, or anything like that. And uh, so two things happened. I took my little Vanessa with me all the way to Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, I was on the ground, by the way, in Scottsdale, Arizona, for like 26 hours to do this conference, and then came back. And uh, anyway, I called the kosher place in Scottsdale, Arizona. For anyone from Arizona, it was a place called Cactus Kosher. It may or may not still be there. And I had them. They were closing early. I had them leave a bag of food outside the door for me, and I asked them if there was a sukkah, and they told me what are the strip malls. I went to the conference. I shook a bunch of hands. 9.30 at night, I go out to find the sukkah in a strip mall in the dark, and I find the sukkah. Looked reasonable, that uh, it was okay, and I sit down to eat my sandwich. I hadn't eaten in a long time uh, in the sukkah. And I hear some rustling after about 10 minutes in there. All of a sudden, some guy peeks in and goes, who are you? And I said, my my name is Michael. Is it it okay to be here? And he said, where are you from? I said, Jerusalem. And he said, Jerusalem? Are you kidding me? He said, no. And he goes, David, come over here. There's a guy here from Jerusalem. And these two guys in overalls and beards walked into the sukkah and talked to me about what's going on in Yerushalayim. So I don't know what time of night, but it was late. And then the next morning, I'm staying in Scottsdale. I get up to go to Shul in Phoenix, which is about a 20-minute drive, 25-minute drive. I go there. They got a sick outside the shul. I come back. I'm carrying this balsa wood lula box. And I get out of the, take it out of my car. I'm walking in the parking lot. And some guy's coming back from a run, a guy I know from conferences. And he says, what's that? I go, oh man, how am I going to explain this to this guy? And I said, it's a, it's a religious object. It's like a palm branch that we shake on this holiday called, called sukkahs. And this man me says, a lula and I said, yeah, he says, I haven't shaken one of those since around my bar mitzvah time. Can I shake it? And they're in the parking lot of the Princess Hotel in Scottsdale, Arizona. I felt like Chabadnik uh, shaking a lulav uh, with a guy. This is a funny story. I'm not sure it impacted anybody, but it was funny. At least it wasn't at the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Elio Hanavi and overalls. That, that, was, that was interesting. I won't share some of those stories, but... Of the time, Michael, help the kids connect the dots, help the boys connect the dots. You're obviously someone's accomplished so much, and you've been in the broader world, and you've been a walking kid of and your conviction is very deep. How does that come from spending your time learning Baba Basra when you're 18 or 19? I think for people that have been to the other side, it makes sense, and we feel that it's important, but. A lot of the boys, most of the people here are boys, and okay, so you're doing so many great things, and many boys may want to be inspired to follow a similar lifestyle, so maybe they should start now, studying economics and meeting people and getting lulabs and, like, connect the dots between sitting in the base medrash when you're 18, 19, 20, and deeply, deeply immersed in the world of Rabchaim and the Rambam and Tanakh and and davening, and, and then how does it all then bleed into the broader world? Um boy
1: that's a complicated question. Uh I'll start with something today I I was on the phone with uh uh the amazing guy who edits my uh my Swarm on Tanakh and economics. I think he's a neighbor of yours or by I Amit Misgav. And he was reading the Shiva for a while I think. And um uh, we were actually talking exactly about this nexus of Rix Torah. Toro uh, he was saying versus the approach I was taking to Dine Ona Ribis and uh, uh and um and uh and um I have a long piece coming in uh in the next volume on uh the fundamentals of Ona of in creating uh economic growth and just societies. And um uh what he was saying was, uh, when, when, when you when you learn bava Matziah, bava basra, bava kama, uh, in yeshiva, um, particularly in the gush, so you're very focused on the intellectual framework, on what makes the law tick and the shalut, uh of the different approaches uh, to it, and without. Uh, one, the theoretical framework, and two, the belief and understanding that all of this emerges from Torah, Emotion, Moshe, the Sinai. Um, You cannot uh, actually approach it from a real-world perspective. Now, you may uh, come to a conclusion, like when I learned Bava Metziah today, I went back and learned Ezer Uneshech after a bunch of years, uh, being out in the business world. And I learned Ezer Uneshech entirely differently than I learned it with Rabbi Blumensweig and uh, Rabbi Danny Wolf, entirely differently um, at the time. Rabbi was a Rebbe in the Gush at the time before he was the Reshiva in um, But without having learned it in Yeshiva and stretched the set of possibilities and done it from a place uh, of uh, Lishma, of Torah, the Moshe, the Sinai, it would have had a far less lasting impact on one's personality uh, than it did when you do it in reverse order from the business world back. And I think one of the uh, – uh, I, I was telling this story today to somebody. Uh, w- one of the interesting questions in, in, in life is – is Reviron used to call it uh, – the, uh, the mix between uh, conservatism and innovation. Uh, I, would say, I would call it a little differently, uh, the, the balance between deep roots and high branches and, uh, and things that want to bust out. And I think, you know, during the time in Yeshiva, one needs to understand a bunch of things. One is that Torah is all encompassing. It really, truly encompasses all parts of life. And that's why uh, there's Bava Basu, Bava Kama, and Bava Matziah, because that actually is real life. Most people go to work all day, and they got damages, and they got lawsuits, and they've got uh, real estate. That's real life. And Torah is what to say about real life. And kiddushin and Gittin, uh, kiddushin is thankfully real life, and Gittin, unfortunately, is also real life. And uh, the Torah has what to say about that, and it's important to get that foundation uh, when you're there. And then, as you walk through life, you go, Oh, Machlief uh, Parabachamor, right? Today is sharing privacy information on the internet in exchange for advertisements, right? But you've got a framework, and it's not just a framework, it's not like silly para Parabachamor is privacy in exchange for ads on the internet. My data in exchange for your ads uh, on the internet. But you go back and say, okay, what were Chazal thinking about? I'll give you an example from the thing I was dealing with today. The by Bayonah start, right? Which is a generic or general statement about people shouldn't cheat. When they're buying and selling things. Um, and then the Torah goes on, uh, and starts talking about what looks like karkos. And this leads to a, a uh, giant discussion, uh, both in Chazal and the Rishonim, the Ramban of the Torah, about whether or not this applies to carcose. Uh Obviously, in the Mishnah says no, I don't know The Ramban points out that the Psukkim is only talking about karkos. Okay. Very nice. But what is the Soda the Dino of Ona? Why, do the Roman, why does Roman law also deal with Ona? You're all probably familiar with caveat emptor, which is a Latin phrase, but it's actually fundamental in British law rather than Latin law. Um, and how does all this mix together and what does this mean for the economic society we want to create? And if you don't have rooting, if you don't have anchoring and deep roots, Um, in the understanding that there is uh, something very uh, uh, rooted about about the Torah that we're learning, then you can go off in a 100 million directions and lose all sight of where you came from. And as much as people think things are different, they're actually not that much different. The same problems that the Torah was dealing with are what we're dealing with today an event around my, my safer or my Benny Lau said, what I learned from your book is that things haven't changed that much. And uh, Nassim Taleb, you uh, probably read some of his books, The Black Swan, Fooled by Randomness, amazing books, Skin in the Game, bit of a rant. Um, is, uh, he's, he describes something called the Lindy effect. Lindy was a deli in New York that somehow never seemed to close down despite every economic crisis. I don't know what's going on now. Now, um, And the Lindy rule, you can read about it on Wikipedia, the Lindy effect is uh, something that's been around for a long time. You can predict how far it'll be into the future by how long it's been around now, until now. And I think there is nothing that satisfies the Lindy effect more than the Torah, the Tanakh, the Mishnah, and Gemara. These systems have been around longer than anything else. So they're likely to persist into the future longer than anything else. There's probably a pretty good reason for that. And, um... And, uh, you know, that's one of the things I took out of, out of my time in Yeshiva. The second thing, right, Tag, you don't mind if I go on for another minute, do you? Answer the question. The the other thing is, um, I can't remember a period in my life where I was challenged, uh, to really figure out who I was as much as that time in Yeshiva. And I think there's something about, uh, learning texts that people much smarter than you, uh, learned for thousands of years before you and people much smarter than you are learning around you uh, during that time and asking questions, asking your Chavusa questions, asking yourself questions, asking your Rebbeim questions. It's a time that through content uh, that is rich, through content that is complex, uh, you know, you can, you can, you can figure out uh, who you are. All um, right. Tarik this story before. It's, it's, Parallel to the Rav Amital story that I told before, this is perhaps the most important lesson I ever learned. Early in my time in yeshiva, I, all I wanted to do was find somebody to talk to Rav Aaron about. And uh, uh, as Rav Bazak wrote not long ago, uh, there's nobody whose heart didn't skip a beat when they went over to ask Rav Aron a question, because he had a feeling you are been him from whatever he was doing. And what you said couldn't be that important. Anyway, uh, there's a lot before the days where you could just copy music by dragging a file onto your MP3 player or onto your iPhone. And uh, they had these things called double cassette recorders. You had two cassettes in the thing, and you copied music from a cassette you borrowed from your friend, and you put it on a blank cassette player. And I went to go ask for Viren if he thought that was mutter to do. And, uh, and he told me, he says, you bought it. If you bought it, you made a kidney. If you made a kidney, they can't tell you what to do, but you're not going to get a medal for kandoshim to you. You know, his point was the Ramban in relation to you, it's Shreya Neva Torah. And uh, it had an enormous impact on me, enormous, that one thing. And those exchanges, those little exchanges, alongside Baba Basran, and Ramban La Torah, and the Rambam, the Rambam Hilchus Deus, and Baba Metzir Baba which you're learning right now. You know, these, these are times you explore who you really are, what really matters.
0: I'm sure I answered your question. It certainly did, but uh, I always wanted to be a game show host. One of my (laughs) fantasies. So here it is towards the end, and there's always the lightning round. uh, Maybe there's some parents here. Remember Richard Burton for The Family Feud and some other famous game show hosts. You know, I was interviewed on a podcast once, and they said, Are you ready for the lightning round? I had to
1: ask what that was. That must have been a game show I missed when I was a kid, I thought I watched them all.
0: <laughs> I have, No one watch more game shows than me. OK. So, so here's, here's the lightning round. okay, you've got to answer quickly. You ready? No more Revin than Revarna would not
1: be happy with this, but go ahead.:
0: No more than five or eight words per answer. These are all questions related to Gush This is a Amital uh, lightning round. Yeah. I say a word, you give me your association. You ready?: Maybe. Rev Lichtenstein. Well, there's no five to eight words for
1: Luchan. This is come on. Um you know, I'm gonna tell a story. Can I do that? It's the lightning
0: round. We'll put in for the end then. I'll I'll, I'll give you a bonus in the end of the round, but everything else gotta okay. be quick, okay? Yeah. Um on Friday night. Kaddishenu. For for thirty
1: years. Uh, Gush Bokram haven't learned how to dance but it was very nice to see Rav Lichensen going around the circle
0: okay Yamin Naraim in the Gush Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur in the Gush
1: oh it was amazing but most amazing was in my third year there for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur they sent a bunch of us to go to Haifa when the Russian Olim came to make a minion Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur there and the fact that the yeshiva sent you out of yeshiva to go make a minion for new Russian Olim in Haifa there were 12 of us so, uh mark smilowitz came a bunch of people you probably know Yitzhi blau or, um was i thought even more important for me
0: gush library
1: i was never there as a Talmud. I spent much more time there afterwards i don't know why um tell. It's relevant to today. Rav Amitav was a rock during the Gulf War. Someone who had survived the Holocaust and had many, many, many questions was, I think, a paragon of, uh, <clears throat> of both emuna uh, and steadfastness during uncertain times. And I got to watch him during the Gulf War. <clears throat> and I think that's highly relevant for today. It's the paragon of emuna. Complex in not in Munapshuta. In my view, at least.
0: Safer you're taking with you to a desert island. Hmm.
1: How long am I stranded? Um. Probably a Tanakh. but I'm reading a 640-page paper right now called Malchim Ben Amude. Maybe you've seen it from Mikhail Abraham. It's pretty interesting. It'll probably take me the whole desert island to finish it. Yeah, you,
0: know, you don't want to bore the, the the fish. Okay, it's pretty interesting. The Gush based medrash. The actual structure. Oh, I miss it. I just miss sitting there. What about it? I go back. What? What about, what do you miss the most? The people.
1: The environment, the energy. I just miss being in it. When I go back, I feel like I'm at home again. It's funny. I'm almost 49 years old. I go back, I feel like I'm at home again. I haven't been a buffer there for over thirty years. I think right now it? no less twenty eight. The Gush I Campus. Back s- uh, so go ahead. Oh, I, I don't. I don't. The Gush Campus. broader know. Campus. And a Bick coming down and give us elbows when we played basketball down there.
0: <laughs> um, Bick had sharp elbows. Sharp elbows. Repaired, repaired. I, I felt those help us.
1: And Rabbi Danny Wolf was a dirty ball player. That's what I remember from the time of the
0: campus. It was always beautiful, it's more beautiful now. Gush it's your own area, not the campus, but just the Shiva being in, in the gush, the broader gush. You know, when I was there it was the intifada, as you remember. So we didn't get out as much, I think, as
1: people Person. do today. And, and it was, uh, you yeah, know, the first thing to follow. And, uh you know, I primarily remember having to travel through Dehesha Hesha time I went to Yushalayim, which is really good for lima Torah because you just didn't leave. And, uh, um, but I don't remember going anywhere else, candidly. I stayed in a lot. Like, you have Aouch
0: now. It's ridiculous. Who ever heard of such a thing? Wait a second. There's some boys who are planning to come next year, so maybe maybe be careful about how candid you you are.
1: In my second year, I stayed in all but four Shabbases. It was the best thing ever.
0: Don't leave. We we actually had a nickname for you because you left for four Shabbos. We called you behind your back the Slacker. (laughs) (laughs) We never left. Okay, what's that? Getting getting you back to the question, Reverend Come on. You know, I was thinking about Reverend actually this morning
1: uh, on something. I um, I'm very. This is going to be very politically incorrect. I am uh, in general not a big fan of what goes on in like Lag Um and this year I am uh, I'm really, really, really distressed. Uh, about some of the cavalier behavior of some of our, our brothers, uh, as related to the the Mid-Durot. And um, one of the things I always found about Ulfensid, and I'm going to tell two stories uh, now, um, was he had an ability um, to give to give rebuke um, and. Unbelievable honesty, but it always came from a heartfelt place, and that's that's something I, I took with me. He gave me rebuke too, um, on a bunch of occasions, and um, so uh, one story is I had a guy come to my door to collect stucco, and he told me he was collecting stucco because he needed to go to Uman for Rosh Hashanah. This wasn't for food. This was to go to Uman. And uh, I was like beside myself that a guy could be collecting to go to Uman for Rosh Hashanah. And, uh, you know, people come from Stokka, they eat food, whatever it is, one thing. And I and he came with letters signed by Rabbanim, known Rabbanim, not kind of the normal Shtempelach, said you should support the guy. And I was like, uh, I was broken from this in many ways. And I went down the block at the time of Aaron lived in Yerushalayim and uh, asked to go see him. And I sat with him and I told him the story. And, uh, and he shook his head like this. And he says, if I asked you to tell me where the isra achilas HaSchelev is, you'd know to tell me, right? I said, yes, I think so. He said, if I asked you to tell me in the Gemara where the isra of Dari shalamesim is, would you know to tell me? He said, but Dari shalamesim is in isra like achilas chalev. And uh, I said, I think I get the message. I said, and what do I do about this? He said, most people don't understand the Yisra of the Eresham and they can't find it. And uh, uh, and we need to help them. That was that was one story. And uh, I'm very fond of a Gemara at the beginning of the Ushamina, with the Zora. Gemara describes what Yeruvim ben Nevat succeeded in doing, how he succeeded in taking the Jewish people, Malchus Yisrael, away from Shlomo HaMelech, uh, away from Rehavim, uh, away from Yerushalayim, more importantly, why they wouldn't make Aliyah al-Rehiyot. And Yerushalayim, the beginning of Avodah Zarah says uh, that Yeruvim convinces the people to go get in Avodah Zarah because Avodah Zarah Avodah Zarah gives in. He gives in to what I call in Hebrew, the Chushim and the Muchash. To our
0: base instincts of what Azar gives in.
1: It says, okay, the more that he gives an example, it says, no, sir, not a big deal. Arise, not a big deal. And um, you saw me the first perk of what Zara. And um, I was also in Ravaran's house this time in a lone schvud. Uh Two koilo guys came to the door. And Ravaran was frail at the time. And uh, and he got up. Well, he asked me to get up and answer the door. Answer the door. said, who is it? He said, to avraham looking for tzedakah. And uh, Ravarin got himself up to the door. He was frail. And he walked to the door. And uh, I was standing behind him. And uh, he gave a long lecture to the guys there about the importance of earning a Parnosa About the importance of getting a profession, because in today's world it's hard to earn a parnasa without actually having professional education. And Imamish gave him taicha there, and then he asked me to go over and get a twenty shekel bill off of a pile, and bring one for each of the guys. And uh, and I think that those stories, for me and there are others, capture just on the one hand his his. His yosher, his inability to see things, uh, um, look, look Sheker in the eye, uh, his ability to give teirchacha, to but to give it from a place of sincerity, and then I don't just to do the right thing, but to do the unusual things, you know, that he did, which was give the stock at the end, and uh, I take that uh, that uh, personal example. Uh, these are among many stories with me uh, everywhere. And I think we're all just unbelievably uh, blessed to have been able to spend time in his, uh, in his share, in the base medrash and, and in his home. Uh, now having said all that, um, I think we can get lost in nostalgia and, uh, and we're in a different generation right now, and Raviron is no longer with us. And, uh, and uh, we can't, we can tell stories. They can't become art school stories. And, uh, and uh, we also can't go ask him questions. And I think more than anyone, Raviron would say, as Ravamital did many times, you know, go forth. You know, door door Dor Shav, who you have as your Abame now is critically important. Um, and, uh, and each generation requires slightly different kinds of, uh, of Torah leadership, sometimes even majorly different kinds of Torah leadership. And we have many challenges now and we can't just be nostalgic. We must take the lessons, but we need to forge, uh, independent and individual paths, uh, with which to get after each person in their, in their chosen profession. But, you know, you take that base medrash and those lessons with you forever.
0: I know that wasn't a lightning answer. Ravarun got his type of answer. Ravamita got his type of answer. <laughs> you know, there's. A, I can speak to you as an insider because we're having a casual conversation that forty people are eavesdropping upon. But uh, one of the uh, one of the nice parts about Ravarun and that they always rip each other. They're like two, like like a couple. Tova Lichtenstein turned to me at the shiva. And she said, you didn't have two Rosh Shivas. You had parents. They were, they were your parents. We saw them interacting together, and, and, and it was such a, a special feel. And they would always rib each other about their contrasting styles. And Ravarana, everything was long and drawn out, an hour and a half long sikhon, and four hours in. And Ravarin was lightning fast, and everything was quick. And as long as the shir finished my lunch, he was happy. <laughs> he could care less." And it's a sort of contrasting style, and it's, like you said before, it's that friction that created balance and proportion in our lives. And to the very end, the very end, Rav Amital passed away on a Friday, and in very, very little time to put the funeral together. It was a real uh, kamikaze funeral. Not enough people were there. It was a small area, shall lie in and quick, quick, couple of spade in Reverend's office. Boiling, which our shabbos is the summer. And Ravaran passed away on a Monday, and I remember it very clear. It was the hardest day of my life. But a uh, 48 to 72 hour period was launched with people flying in from all over the world and a major funeral that was attended by the tens of thousands of people with dozens and dozens, but numerous speakers. So I'm sure in Shammai, <laughs> we got together. And you got yours, and you got yours, and everyone got, everyone got what, what was a what, what they enjoyed. Yeah, you know the uh,
1: when I started uh, Aleph, the firm, the venture capital firm that I'm at now. So it's it's an equal partnership. So I wrote a blog post that uh, you can find it on six kids and a full time job to bring it back to the beginning there about that I learned the nature of an equal partnership from avarna or bami You don't have to agree all the time, but there needs to be love and respect.
0: Michael, thank you. Thank you for giving us your time. This is probably not your only Zoom. But <laughs> and I had uh, one line that I heard Michael tell a story tonight that he had previously said in a public forum in yeshiva that the story of uh, the stucco collectors at Rav door, Michael said he asked him why he gave them the money after he gave uh, them the Tokacha. And uh, he had a very sharp answer that
1: you want me to add it
0: I think so I think it's uh, very worthwhile
1: he said that he couldn't sleep at night if he didn't give the money and uh, you know think that somebody may have gone hungry at night because he didn't give them the stucco uh, he couldn't he couldn't sleep with that I heard him say that on multiple occasions for what it's worth um and uh yeah that was that was a time. Mesh, I have a few more minutes. I can take a few questions if that' would be helpful to you, or we can wrap it up. It's up to you.
0: you're on mute. Anyone who wants a question, just um unmute yourself, Elijah. I'm just going to see Elijah go ahead. uh how did you decide that you wanted to get in venture capitalism, and what were the steps that you took? after Yeshiva to sort of propel that career? Look,
1: I don't know how to tell this to you. Um, I think uh, everyone today thinks life is very planned out. I'm going to take this step and this step and this step and I'm going to plan my career. I, I, I can't tell you how many young people I've spoken to over the last 10 years, 12 years, 15 years are planning their careers, and it never goes that way. And most of these people who get stuck in a planning can't adapt. And this goes back to the uncertainty thing I was talking about before. Um, And I I was unemployed and couldn't find a job. So I started something that kind of became a venture capital fund over a bunch of years. So I didn't plan anything. I know what venture capital was. I had no idea. And, uh, even when I started, I didn't know what it was called. We called it merchant banking initially. So, I, you know, that's that's one of the things I've learned about venture capital is it's not is it's not a career; it's a set of personality traits. And that's why the great ones: Mike Moritz was a journalist, Bill Gurley was a stock market analyst, Bruce Dunlevy was a product manager at Intel. You know, Bob Cagle invested in eBay, worked at General Motors. It's it's a set of personality traits. Which, by the way apropos of the beginning part of the conversation, are driven by curiosity, optimism, belief, skepticism alongside optim- uh, uh, optimism, and an ability to see or imagine or dream about a future um, that doesn't even look close to existing right now. You know, it's like a joke. When Benchmark, my former firm, invested in, in, in eBay, it's like the beginning of the internet in 1995 and a bunch of gadgets on there. And it's like, who could imagine this become biggest marketplace uh, you know, in the world, and uh, it's it's you know, I met the PayPal guys early on when it's still called x.com and zoom.com. That was before this, zoom, by the way, it was a previous zoom.com, it was called x o o m, immersion to PayPal. Um, and uh, you know, it was, it was really kooky, and uh, you know, but they had some believers, so you know, it's people that. It's a a networking business. You have to like people. you got to get out and network. It's a hustle business. It's a curiosity business. But it's not one you can, I think, plan a career for. Um, There are rare guys who get into a place like Insight or Emergence Capital and can start these analyst programs uh, and kind of build their way up. Rare. And it's becoming rarer and rare. I was actually just on the phone. We're recruiting a fourth partner now. I was on the phone with our recruiter two hours ago. She said all these young guys who got in to think about a career getting fed up because they're carrying a lot of water and the water is being poured on their head pretty quickly by the senior guys. So um, I'm not sure I answered your question, but don't plan so much. Don't plan so much. We're in uncertain times and in general things are uncertain. Keep a true north, but keep you know, poking around. And be curious, keep reading, learning, reading, learning, reading, learning, reading. Not articles, books. We read articles and memes and posts. Nonsense. You need to read books. If you can't finish a book, you can't finish anything.
0: Any, any suggestions? I
1: right, have a long list of suggestions of books.
0: Top You three. want it? Yeah.
1: Okay. Have you read The Halachic Man yet? No. You need to. That's number one. Uh, Have you read Leaves of Faith yet? No. Number two. Have you read Fooled by Randomness? No. Have you read Good to Great? No. Well, you got a lot of catching up to do. Have you read The Black Swan? No. Have you read The Rational Optimist? No. No. Mr. Charm? No, just kidding. Um,
0: I have read the, that. What? I
1: have read you've, you've read that. Um, I, I would highly recommend both Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahaneman and the book Michael Lewis wrote on these two guys called The I Unknowing read that Project.
0: One. I read Good that one. one. Just finished that one.
1: Yeah. You should read Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. Also, Why People Don't Tell the Truth by Dan Ariely. Um any book you can read of Michael Mabusian is professor of finance at Columbia but he 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 teases apart luck and skill in a very effective way um the, the guy is, is is a genius um and he's he's a very accessible uh uh writer i think i said the rational optimist by by matt ridley um there's a really interesting book that just came out by dr eric Topel. I highly recommend it. Uh, I can't remember its name right now. The future is Asian by Parag Khanna. He's not Jewish. He's he, he's Indian. Now um, we we've got another. I, I got a whole another set here um, that I highly recommend uh, uh, reading as well, which is in a whole different uh, uh, category of uh, of books. If you haven't read the Rambana La Torah Keseder, you need to read it. You need to learn the Ramban al-Torah kisader. Not, you know, apostolic here, apostolic there. he has a real philosophy of the world um, that is worth digging into. Um, the second thing I, I, I highly recommend is um, if you are a, a rationalist but are interested in the, in, the, in the meeting between Torah and the real world, the Abar particularly on Sefer Tvarim, is, is, is a goldmine. Um, and make sure you read this Avdama to Sefer Tvarim because it's critically important to understand what happened in 1492 when all the Jews in Spain felt very safe, and it turned out it wasn't. Agdoma the Arba Sefer Dvarim is a monument, um, uh, and then read them through in Sefer Dvarim, particularly on Veschanan, Ekev, and Shoftim. Um, those are pretty fundamental. For some entertainment, you can go back and read about the Makos, San um, Peyru and Bo, because he'll sound like an uppity curse, but he's not. Um, it's actually very brilliant, particularly for today's Corona times. Um, my wife is fond of uh, quoting a Czech, uh, a Czech intellectual who said that the democracy could have happened by, by nature.
0: And you know, Barbara,
1: Nell, by the way, says the same thing, except for one thing. She says, you know, causing all these things to happen in nature and can, you know, consecutively and triggering the events requires some intervention. Um, and it uh, and, and couldn't be uh, happenstance uh, in that regard um uh other swarm. i'm not in a place where i have all my swarm right now oh you know what i've really enjoyed rav amnon bazak's two swarm, one called is the most recent one and not a previous one fantastic um and if you're not going to learn all shas in the next uh couple of years there's a couple of shortcuts, at least on Agaditas. You can read Rav Benilao's Chachamim books, but those are quick reads, uh, wonderful reads, but quick, quick reads. Um, I think Rav Benilao's, by the way, book on I Anobi is fantastic um, and highly relevant for today as well, for the political upheavals we're going through in the world today. Uh, highly recommend this book on Yermio. I think it's out in English as well. If The Hebrew is too difficult. Um,
0: well, I can go on. scaring uh, them, Michael. You-
1: you're scaring him. You're scaring right. him. right, target I'll tell you a funny story in relation to this. Uh, it's, it's actually a funny story in two parts. So when I was in yeshiva, in my second year in Kayitzman, the Rabbi Lichensin decides that they're going to do this thing called Bikiyas in Kayitzman. And uh, we're learning uh, Bab Mitzia. This was my first year. I don't remember anymore. And, uh, and he said, we're going to be doing bikis. And you see, he got up and described what Rashi was. Of course, the Ramban and the Ritzvah and the Rashba and the Riff and the Rosh and the Rambam. Of course. And then we can go on to the next sugi. And uh, and uh, many years later, when I went to him, uh, it was two cycles ago on the Daf Yomi. I went and asked if I should learn Daf Yomi. And he kind of walked him home from the Shtiblach in Yerushalayim one day. And he said to me, uh, looked at me like this and like this and he says you know everyone should see all the shots at one point in their life and uh I said so so should I do it he said everyone should see shots you know at least one time in their life and I walked away thinking that maybe I should do the Dafyomi but maybe my conception of the Dafyomi wasn't his conception of the Dafyomi and his included the Ramban the Ritz for the Rush the raw, and everybody in between
0: so Michael, thank you. Thank sure. You for your time. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your conviction. Guys, come back here. Your principles. Come back.
1: Get over Get over here. This is where it's at, guys.
0: Amir Shem. They're all coming back home. Guys, your shiva's open. Those of you who've left, we're going to see you back soon. Amir Shem. Those of you who are coming next year, put your seatbelts on. You've met a lot of people. <laughs> thank you again, Michael.
1: Thank you, Rabbi Targan. Lailatov.
0: Tov. and this will be recorded and posted um, on the Yeshiva's various uh, social media.